Andy Bastian. And I'm Aubrey Calvin. And this is Southern Queries. Exploring all things LGBTQ in the South. All right. So India, last episode we talked to your friend Mila. It was amazing. And part of 2022, I'm trying to stop using amazing so much, but Mila really was and is. Now, who is Ale that we're talking to this episode? Oh, gosh. So Ale does have like a formal bio, but the background with Ale is we actually went to, I guess in the States, we call it middle school Mm. together. Um, She was the awkward new kid and um, no one wanted to talk to her, um, but I went up to her and sat down with her at the sandwich benches because I didn't want to play kiss the boys game. I thought it was gross and she didn't want to play either. And so we bonded over secretly being queer unknowingly (laughs) Ah, and not knowing about it. Yes. Yeah. And then we kept up our friendship for years. I mean, um, we did all middle school together and then we did um, a little bit of junior high together. We both did some form of homeschooling. If my memory serves me correctly, I think she left to finish out high school and I reconnected with her as one does on social media to find out that not only had she become a professor, uh, um, of like romance studies and lesbian history, Ugh, dreamy. Um, but she also came out as gay, and I was really excited to learn that she was gay. And um, we reconnected. She came and visited me in Atlanta, and then um, you know her mom still lives in our hometown. I she's also. Um, had a stint as a stand-up comic. Um, She also is on a different podcast regularly called Hablemos Escritoras, which means let's talk writers. And she talks about uh, female uh, Latin writers um, in order to give them more visibility because we actually have a huge amount of female and or non-binary writers in Latin America, but they're rarely featured. Um, so she is now, uh, just an amazing friend of mine. She's really good friends with my sister. I love keeping up with her. Like I mentioned in the previous episode, she actually goes and has lunch and breakfast with my mom on a regular basis. And honestly, Aubrey, we just had a fantastic conversation with her and I cannot wait for all of us to join in on the debate and the ongoing conversation of the difference between Latinx and Latine. Um, and you had asked me earlier what my thoughts were on it. Well, yeah, because, you know, I do like this whole safe space LGBTQ ally training with other people at my college. Um, and the person who leads it does so much work and he's a great ally. Um, but when I first started doing these trainings, like five, six years ago, when I was first even just coming up myself, we were using the term Latinx as a part of the training and saying we encourage people to use this in the classrooms and we encourage instructors to use Latinx in the classroom when talking about students, talking to students, 
because it's a more inclusive language, a term, because Latinos can be so gendered and so much of the Spanish language is gendered. And Latinx was supposed to be the inclusive one. And now it seems like there's a lot of backlash or pushback and a lot of people are saying, this is the, what, United States Americans are trying to do with um, Spanish culture, uh, Latin culture, and that it's not what they, not what people want. And I would love to hear your thoughts on all of this because I, you know, I'm very inclusive in my classroom. It's become the point where all the LGBTQ students somehow find their way to me. I still struggle using Latinx in the classroom because I know it's controversial. What are your thoughts? Mm -hmm. So I don't think using Latinx is wrong or bad. Um, I do think, however, it is an Americanized uh, proposition and attempt on being inclusive, which I have to give um, the American English speaking society props to. However, when it comes to Spanglish, English and versus Spanish, when I first saw Latinx on a poster, it made me laugh because X in Spanish is silent. Mm -hmm. um, and when I say stuff like don't be Equis, which is the uh, translation of the letter X, yeah, it actually means don't be indifferent, don't be boring, don't be Equis is like, um, like non-existent, never mind, um, whatever. Uh, it's, yeah, it's like whatever. So inadvertently, um, I don't think they did it on purpose, but people who wanted to be inclusive with Latinx actually backfired in the sense that it made it look like we don't care. One, two, you can't pronounce it in Spanish. No, so when I get Latinx, it just says Latin, yes. which isn't particularly a word in Spanish. So I discovered a YouTube video um, of this 12 year old girl talking to her mom about how the principal had suspended her because she was arguing with the teacher about creating a more inclusive language in Spanish and how things are gendered. And she used the word E um, in um, the end of the sentences where you would have A female or O male. So Latine is uh, the Spanish equivalent of Latinx. Um, I see how people can be super confused. Um, it's really hard for me. I'm still practicing. It's like using they, them pronouns in English. Like in today's world, it's like smooth as butter. But in <laughs> Spanish, doing Latine or using the E in Spanish, like ellas and nosotres takes me a really long time. Um, so it is a new up and coming process, I think, in our language. It's very so I think both are awesome. Both are awesome. <laughs> That's my conclusion. Well, I've, I've used Latin or Latine, Latine a few times in class and I feel more comfortable with that. I have a hard time with Latinx. Um, you, know, you know, I just want, we call people what they want to be called. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
but I also, so, I mean, this is what you happens when you have a history, like, you know, French, and I you know Rini and Karen and I are learning French together. This is what happens when you have a language that is based on gender, where different nouns of objects are based on gender. Things that you don't necessarily see in US English or British English, like a chair is a chair. A chair is not masculine or feminine, but in some languages, a chair is a masculine or a feminine noun. And this is that conflict we're seeing. Yeah, so I'm excited to for our listeners to hear what Ale has to say because I thought it was a really fruitful conversation and it's going to continue. <laughs> we are not going to solve it, but I do like talking about it. So let's talk to Ale. Well, um, so first of all, welcome to the show. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yes, so Alejandra is an assistant professor of Spanish with a focus on gender and sexuality in Latin America and the Caribbean at Michigan State University Department of Romance and Classical Studies, which I have to admit, I'm just like picturing that enormous title on the outside of your office door. Please tell me that's what it says. I think it, I, you know, it's been over a year since I was last in my office, uh, but I feel like it just has my name and I probably says assistant professor of Spanish. Uh, that's like the short version. Boo. That's, Boo, so nice. that's it. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, what I thought, what I loved about your intro um, is um, it also had um, a whole section on what your current book projects are. Um, and the focus is on literary and, literary and cultural representations of lesbian desire in contemporary Mexico and how narratives can serve to challenge normative concepts of issues such as gender identity, race, and class. Alejandra Marquez, all of this is so rich and I wanna talk about it for a day. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I wanted to add the other thing that was really great about your intro and the reason why I want to talk about it on the show is your interest says Ale has a broad spectrum of research interests that include queer slash queer theory, feminism and gender violence in Latin America, Mexican Chronicle or Cronica and gender and sexuality in Latin American film. Uh, what? Please come and talk to us all the time. <laughs> I, I would be happy there. to do that. Thank you. Uh, so she has taught graduate and undergraduate courses at Michigan State University, including Latin America and its literature, women's Latin America, and queer Latin American literature of the 20th and 21st centuries. I forget we're in the 21st century. I'm like, oh, the future? But no, that's now. I'm old. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, Ali, Ali is also a self-proclaimed taco connoisseur and lover of all things related to Mexican food. Uh, and she says when she is not teaching or doing research, you can find her printmaking or working on illustrations. Which by the way, I had no idea you were that artistic. I'm loving all of the art that you're pushing out. Um, so for contact, Aubrey and our listeners, I thought it would be super interesting to add a little bit of like background. Ale and I grew up in the same town. <laughs> in San Miguel de Allende, Mexico, and 
actually, when I talk about my coming out story, you are part of it. Um, and I have a very distinct memory and tell me if you remember this. I feel like I've had this conversation with you before, but we're in Bambi, which was our middle school. And we mm -hmm. were wearing uniforms because in those days, that's what people did. And the girls in the class wanted to play kiss the boys. And I was like, ew, why would we do that? Why can't we just kiss the girls? And they like made fun of me and got really mad. So I went to go sit on this bench and there was the new girl, Alejandra Marquez sitting there. And I was like, you were like, do you want some of my sandwich? And I was like, no, I was like super mad that they didn't want to play kiss the girls. Aww. Oh <laughs> my God. What? Sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, that's my memory of meeting you. It's like I met you in this like playground of Bambi <laughs> when I was pissed off about our gender norms of the playground. <laughs> and of course, while people would be discussing gender norms, I would be eating a sandwich by myself in the corner. <laughs> Sounds about right. Well, I mean, I think if you add a book to the sandwich, I mean, that's just a whole day for me. I mean, mm -hmm. reading a book, I don't, think, I don't see the problem with that. That was half of my lunches in middle school and high school. So, sounds good yeah. to me. Yeah. And then um, I totally forgot um, this like tidbit about you, but you did um, spend some time growing up in Texas in a little town called Gonzalez and also Laredo. Yes. I feel like you were in Laredo. No. I was in Laredo for undergrad and for my master's. Ah, ah yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so you grew up in, so you went to middle school together. You grew up in San Miguel mm -hmm. de Allende together. Uh, mm -hmm. And you also have a love for Mexican food and women and also podcasts. Can you tell <laughs> us about your, what's this podcast? Oh, yeah. So I, I collaborate in a podcast called Hablemos Escritoras so like let's talk about women writers basically um, and it's a project that is led by Adriana Pacheco who works for the University of Texas at Austin and I somehow stumbled into it and I loved it so much because it's just focused on women writers uh, or women identified writers and um and initially it was, I think it was just Mexico and then just Latin America. And now it's growing and growing and growing. And so I realized that Adriana and I had a bunch of people in common. And so I sent her a Facebook message and I was like, oh my God, I love your podcast. I'm such a fan. And she was like, awesome. Do you want to, you know, maybe have a conversation about some authors that you like? And I was like, what? Like, really? And so I was super excited. I did that and then I was super nervous. Like if you listen to my first contribution, I sounded like I was going to pass out and I felt like I was going to pass out. Uh, <laughs> and then after that, she was like, you should come back. And I was like, really? And she was like, yeah, you know, just talk about writers that you like or books that you like and, you know, and do some book reviews. So I collaborate with them. I haven't done much this past year just because of the pandemic. Uh, but I'm reviewing a book uh, soon. Uh, maybe it'll probably be out in like a month or two. Um, so it's a really cool project. Right now they're, they've opened a shop. So it's like you can get books by women writers from Latin America that you normally would not be able to get in the U.S. So 
So I think they're doing some really, really cool stuff to, to make sure that these writers are being read and being taught. So it's, it's just, it's an amazing project. Ah, oh, I love it. We will totally like cross promote and add links in our um, description for our listeners to learn more about this. It is mostly or solely in Spanish. It's in Spanish, although I think there have been a couple of episodes in English. Cool. Awesome. So for um, our listeners que hablan español, por favor, hay que escuchar Hablemos Escritoras because it's good. Um, so I want to start out before we deep dive too much into some of your work. Um, Ale, I'd love to have you tell us your coming out story. I love telling this story. I've told this story a million times because when I was a graduate student at UNC, um, I helped them with safe zone training. I don't know if it's called safe zone anymore. It's, you know, just a training that they would hold for the community to learn more about LGBTQ individuals. And so part of it was a panel with people that were out and they would, we would tell our coming out story. So I've told this a million times and it's a, I think it's a really fun story. Uh, so I was usually like the, the comic relief because my story is really funny. Uh, and so, so I've, I've known, I, and I, I identify as a lesbian, I guess, but that's probably the closest uh, thing. Uh, queer, I, I have never openly identified as queer, but more like a lesbian. And it's a bit of a political thing that we can get into later. But um, I always knew that I like girls. And, but I didn't, you know, and you grew up in San Miguel. So you know that San Miguel, you know, 15 years ago was not like a queer Mecca at all. Uh, there were probably a lot of gay men. No, not at all. I, I think, I mean, I always say that I'm the only lesbian in town and I, don't, I technically don't even live here. Uh, there are more, of course, but, but it's not very visible. And so it wasn't visible then. And so growing up, I was very scared. And so I made this choice, you know, actually once I left for college, that's when I was like, oh, okay, I think I am, you know, lesbian. And so I decided that I was going to keep it on the DL and like not tell my mom until, which I, which, and, you know, when I think back on it, I'm like, well, that was like a very, you know, good idea, uh, which was, I'm not going to tell her until I'm, I've graduated and I'm financially stable. So she can't kick me out of the house because I thought she was not going to take it well at all. Uh, not because she was like a raging homophobe. I just didn't know. It was really hard to tell with my mom. And so I was in college and I was in Mexico for a year in college. Um, and I had a girlfriend in Mexico City. I was living in Puebla, which is a couple hours drive from Mexico City. And so I came home for the holidays and my stepdad went to sleep really early and it was just my mom and I. So we were having a little bit uh, to drink and she was, uh, I'm going to say, more than tipsy. And she <laughs> was like, well, you should tell me something about yourself that I don't know. And I was like, you know everything about me. She was like, no, there's things that I don't know. And I was like, what could you possibly be talking about? I don't know. And so we just sort of did that thing back and forth for like 30 minutes because I didn't want to say it. So I was like, well, if you know something, what is it? And she was like, no, you have to say it. And I was like, I'm not going to say it. So it was like that forever. Wait, did you, uh, did you think that finally, she knew or that she already had a hint of it or what did she I mean, I was like, at that point, really I, was like, yeah. I was like, at that point, I was like, she knows and she's trying to get me to say it, but I'm not going to say it. Like, if she knows, she's okay. going to tell me. <laughs> and I think that was sort of like how she felt. Like, 
I know, and now she knows that I know, so she's gonna say it. So it was just like this never ending thing. Uh, and finally, she was like, you're, you're a lesbian and you're dating, you know, whoever I was dating at the time. And I was like, yeah. And, um, and I was like, you're not mad or weirded out. And she was like, no, like I've known this for a while and I've been, you know, thinking about it for a while. And of course I was like, well, how did you know? And of course he gave me the most mom response, like I'm your mother, of course I know, right? And so it was really nice because I was like immediately like, oh God, like how is this gonna change our relationship? Because I mean, we were close, uh, but not as close as we are now. And so, and I always say that the reason we became really, really close was like after I came out, or I always say I didn't come out, she dragged me out. So she dragged me out of the closet. It just sort of felt like I can just be myself all the time now. And it was, you know, it took her a while because I also was afraid that it was gonna be this thing where she knew, but we just didn't talk about it. And it was gonna make me feel not great. And I didn't wanna feel any shame because honestly, like I can say that I'm fortunate and privileged enough that I've never felt shame about my sexuality. And so I didn't want that to be the case. And so it took her a bit. And then it would it became this thing where like, I would go out for lunch with a friend. She'd be like, is that your girlfriend? Are you dating? And I'd be like, no, not at all. And she'd be like, you can tell me. And I'd be like, no, I'm just having lunch with a friend. <laughs> and now, you know, like <laughs> she's met my, my girlfriends and she's been super sweet and loving and accepting. And she's very picky with who I date. Uh, and it's great. Of so. <laughs> So, Aubrey, I have to share, um, I have the fondest memories of actually going to Ale's house. Her mom always made us like food that I was never allowed to have at my house. Um, and I have very fond memories of your NSYNC posters. <laughs> oh my God. They're, they're, in my, they're in my closet right now. <laughs> Backstreet Boys? I haven't NSYNC. thrown them out. NSYNC, come on. Stop it. Um, I, I actually have I have one of those instinct puppet dolls from the oh, really was it bye 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 video yeah so I have one and I'm never getting rid of it oh no but like Aubrey Holly was obsessed she knew all the lyrics um I loved going over to her house her mom was always there really attentive she would always make us like awesome junk food and like quesadillas and like I just have like the best memories of your mom and I haven't seen her in so long but everything you're saying I'm like oh my god I can picture it right now it's so great <laughs> that's an awesome coming out story and um how about your like extended family how did they react or your friends well that's I mean extended family and uh, and I'm just saying this because I know they're not going to listen to this podcast uh <laughs> and even if they did that would be okay uh but like my mom didn't I mean, my father has never been in my life, so that's, it doesn't count. Um, and, but then my mom has sisters and they didn't speak for a very long time. Like for, I don't know, I want to say maybe like 15 years, they didn't speak at all. And then out of the blue, they started talking again. And my mom was sort of like, this is your family. You should love them. And I was like, I don't know these people. I have nothing in common with these people at all. Um, <laughs> so we had like a family reunion and in Ciudad Juarez, because my family is all from Northern Mexico. So also like I'm the black sheep of the family because I was born in Mexico City. And Aubrey, I don't know if you know this, and I don't know if like your audience knows this, probably not. Uh, but 
people outside of Mexico City, most people outside of Mexico City don't love people from Mexico City. People in Northern Mexico especially don't like people from Mexico City. Uh, so I'm the black sheep of the family because I was born in Mexico City. I sound, I don't know if I sound like I'm from Mexico City anymore, but I sound like I'm definitely not from Northern Mexico. So it was really weird, you know, sort of meeting my family. They're all very much the same, you know, very like heteronormative, very, you know, I don't know. They just well, what's the problem? They're very much Mexico City. Uh, you know. <laughs> there's a lot to unpack. Uh, no, I mean, the, well, the that is why I'm asking I... so that we can unpack it because <laughs> that's what I think we're I'm trying to do with this episode is that I know very little about contemporary Mexican culture. I've learned about <laughs> right. Mexican history from a political standpoint, but I know nothing about current contemporary culture. So. Um, it's it's a lot like the relationship that maybe a Texan might have to a New Yorker. Um, um, like okay. Texas would be Mexico City, and then um, New Yorkers, their sentiments of like other people, or maybe even New Jersey and New York. Like okay, those all right, things. okay. You know, yeah, it's that like makes, that, kind of, that does make sense. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and Mexico City um, is notoriously, you know, t they're they're a richer city. They're I think the second biggest city in the world, uh, or they were for a very long time. I don't know where they stand now. Um, so people from Mexico City travel a lot around Mexico and they just have a bad rap of um, like being the dirty tourist, the loud tourist, the annoying ones. Um, they spend money, they like things fast, cheap and quick. Um, but on the flip side, Mexico City has a lot of education, incredible museums, uh, tons of rich history. Um, so it's a, such an interesting dynamic, but it's really like the North versus the South kind of dynamic um, that I think you were referring to, Ale, but, you know, interject where you must. No, yeah, I, I yeah, agree with yeah. that, but also it's like, like in the U.S. you have North and South, but here it's like everybody against Mexico City, um, but it's like people from Mexico City don't care, right? It, but at the same time, if you if you think about it, Mexico is a very centralized country, right? So like yeah, education, okay. you know, culture, it's all invested in Mexico City and it's like the center for everything. So I think that leaves, so especially like even with literature, like for a very long time, if you weren't writing from Mexico City, nobody yeah. was going to read you your work yeah. and that's changed. Yeah. So, so I think there's like this privilege of, of being in Mexico City and getting to experience more things having more access to certain things that you know than if if you're on the outside and then also like in northern mexico people are i would say like texans you know like very much like like macho like cowboys you know this, this sort of personality whereas in mexico city typically a lot of the times they think of like all oh, like the urban you know more um uh, you know, uh, not as macho, and there, and of course, there's also like a racial component, right? Like in the north, uh, people, a lot of people tend to be whiter. Not everyone, right? But it, that's that's sort of how it is. And, and like a lot of the the comments that I've heard from northern Mexico towards people in, in in central Mexico, Mexico City, and then the rest of the country is like, well, you know, they're more indigenous. So there's there's a lot of uh, interesting and problematic dynamics going on with that. Yeah, and um, 
the color of your skin and how light your eye or your hair is, is a huge thing in Mexican culture. And we could have a whole episode just mm-hmm. dedicated to that. But oh, yeah. one of those oh, where yeah. African-American culture and Mexican culture kind of that lineup where yeah. the historic preference is to be lighter skinned is what you would want to be. And I know I remember dating myself, but there was an issue a few years back about how Mexican Vogue had never put an indigenous uh, looking person on their cover and Mexican Vogue always went towards more lighter skin models. And I don't remember, I think that was a few years back. I'm, I've slept yeah, since then or haven't a- slept since then, but that was a big thing. It's like a huge deal. Yeah. And um, it's such a rich topic. Um, and like I said, that could be like a whole other podcast, but Ale, I really want to hear about, um, I noticed that on your website, you had two different spellings of queer. So you had queer as in Q-U-E-E-R. And then right next to it, it was like slash queer. And I'm saying it in this weird, like Hispanic accent, because I feel like that's what I want to do, but it's C-U-I-R. Talk to me about this word. Uh, So this is a word uh, that was... um you know, established or the the people that came up with this are academics and activists working either from Latin America or in other places like the US or Europe, but specifically on issues of queerness in Latin America. And so it comes from an effort of trying to translate queer because like there's no, if we translate queer into Spanish, I mean, the closest thing would be raro, rarito, you know, and, and, you know, some, there's, there's several, there have been several attempts to translate it, but queer in English has, you know, like a, a cultural significance and, and the way in which queer communities have reappropriated the term, you know, it, it, it's like a political move in its own. So because translating queer into Spanish doesn't have the same historical background or the same historical significance, there have been other ways to try to to translate it. So queer, C-U-I-R, is one of those ways in which it has been done. So that's what I uh, what I use a lot of the times when I'm writing. Either I, I do uh, queer in italics or queer, uh, because it's just sort of a way to, to say, okay, we're going to think about queer. We're obviously going to use queer theory, but we're going to think about queerness with from within Latin America instead of just sort of bringing these historically white uh, you know, uh, frameworks and try to apply them to Latin America. So there, it's sort of like a, like it's a, an ongoing process of rethinking and translating and reappropriating it from Latin America. Oh, I love that. And honestly, like when I think about reading the word queer in my like Mexican self, I'm like, I don't even, I can, how would... <laughs> those words do not make sense in Spanish in any shape way or form (laughs) no and like even you know in like day-to-day society I was talking to a friend who you know very well and whom I love very much and it's one of my best friends and I'm not gonna name her on the show but she's straight and she's from Mexico and I said something to her about some workshop that I took on on queer literature and she was like like what is that and I was like you know queer and she was like I have no idea what you're talking about. Can you explain it? So I explained it. She was like, I had no idea that this was a thing, you know, and she's, you know, she's not uneducated. You know, I think she's like your 
you know, standard uh, Mexican, you know, educated Mexican. And so I was like, wow, <laughs> it's not like in the US where like, if you say, oh, you know, so-and-so is queer or whatever, like most people will understand, because, you know, it's because of that historical significance of the word queer that you don't have here. Well, yeah, and I think even when you listen, when you read a lot of queer uh, Latina writers, a lot of times those stories, like if you, like I read uh, Juliet Takes a Breath, and that came out about five years ago. Uh, that is more from a Puerto Rican perspective, and it was based in America. And so a lot of the readings that I have in terms of lesbian fiction is still some form of a Latin American um, representation or identity, but in the United States, not centered, not centered in Latin America or in Mexico, which is why uh, India was so insistent that we had this conversation in the show because we seem to be stopping the conversation at the border arbitrarily instead of having a complete understanding of what's going on really in our continent in Latin America and the connections between the two. So I think that's, I think I, I find that very interesting. Well, and to be perfectly frank, I had no idea that there was queer Latin American literature um, until Ale and I reconnected on Facebook. Um, and I was like, one, holy shit, I can't believe we're still connecting on Facebook. Two, we're both gay, fuck yeah. Three, what? <laughs> Let's talk about this. Um, so I'd love to hear- In that order. <laughs> yes, in exactly that order. <laughs> um, I'd love to hear Tell us about your favorite queer Latin American literature um, or specific, either a writer or a specific genre or section. Tell us more. Or maybe some titles for those of us that really aren't that familiar with the literature that maybe some intro titles so that we can go to the library and start reading them or. Yeah, so uh, the thing is a lot of them are not translated into English. Um, I believe maybe some of the most well-known uh, books might be. I'm not sure, like, the, you know, if you think about lesbian literature in Mexico specifically, like the first, I mean, and, and, I, say, and I say lesbian literature, but I don't necessarily believe that that's a genre. I think it's, you know, for me, it's like literature that in some way represents lesbian desire or a same-sex or a queer desire, right? Uh, but it would be, it's called Amora by Rosa Maria Rofiel. And that was published in 1989. So like, you think about it, it's very recent, you know, like I was born before that, you know, came out. So it's, it's very recent. And I think, so like, that's that's the main, you know, the most well-known. And then after that you have uh, Sara Levi Calderon, which is actually a pseudonym uh, because the author came from a very wealthy Jewish family in Mexico City. So she had to write under a pseudonym because her family was basically harassing her and threatening her. Mm for being a lesbian and for speaking about it publicly. So that was published in 1990. And so I think some of the, the scholars say that it was actually written before Amora, but published after. So there's like that ongoing thing. Uh, so I think those are like the main titles, but there's all these different writers that I think are wonderful and worth reading. And of course my work and my current project is very based in you know Mexico, but a novel that I really, really like um, that I read somewhat recently is by a trans author, or I should say travesti, which is a different category. Uh, 
out of uh, Argentina. And it's sort of a reappropriation of the word, you know, uh, travesti, which, which in, in, in a literal translation to English would be transvestite, but it, it doesn't mean the same thing, right? It's not, yeah. And I know that that, that word is, is out of use now in, in, in the US and in other places, but in, in Spanish, in Latin American Spanish, it's been reappropriated as a way to reject the idea of transgender as something that has been theorized in the global north. So travesti is typically a feminine presenting person, but a lot of uh, travestis, they don't necessarily believe that they're in a binary. So they'll use feminine pronouns, you know, they'll present as feminine. Uh, they were assigned male at, at birth, but they are trying to sort of go against the idea of gender through a different, you know, conception of their own identity. It's it just, it's fascinating. And mm -hmm. you can read about it. There's, uh, they, I think some works by, by travesti activists have been translated. Uh, so there's a novel by travesti writer uh, Camila Sosa Villada, who just won the Premio Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz, which is a very important award given to women writers. So it's the first time that a trans, or in this case, travesti writer wins that award. And it's called Las Malas. And it's basically like, um, it's a autobiographic fiction. You know, it's, uh, you know, and it's, it's fascinating. It's so well written. It's a beautiful, beautiful story with, you know, a lot of really dark things, but it's, I think it's more than just portraying the violence that travestis have to go through uh, because a lot of times, of course, they have to work in prostitution because there's no work for them. And uh, this is mostly in Argentina, in Peru, in Chile, but actually Argentina just passed a travesti and trans uh, labor law in which they are going to hopefully be getting more jobs. You know, it's, it's the, I think, I, I don't wanna generalize, but I wanna say it's probably the first of its kind in Latin America. So it's a huge and amazing step towards, uh, you know, inclusivity of trans and travesti um, individuals. So Las Malas by Camila Sosa Villada, wonderful. There's just so many books that I like. Uh, there's also <laughs> a, uh, I, it's like an illustrated book. I don't, I don't necessarily call it like a graphic novel, but it's like an illustrated book by writer Artemisa Telles, who is uh, in Mexico. And uh, it's called Crema de Vainilla. And it sort of deals with like BDSM. It, you know, there's all kinds of really cool things. Um, that are being written in Latin America. And yeah, like I think like India said, you know, it's a lot of times you don't you don't think like, oh, queer literature, Latin America, but there are a lot of really great and innovative writers. I think that's part of the problem is that, and this is me coming from someone who's lived in the United States for like 35 out of my almost 40 years, we don't think about Latin America in the United States. We don't think about Mexico. We don't think about our obsession with the word calling ourselves American as a country and negating the fact that that talks about two continents and Latin America and a billion other people. <laughs> and so we don't tend to have those conversations in the United States. And I think that's part of the problem. Yeah, and yeah. 
That's, I mean, that's part of the reason why I wanted to have you on the show, Ale. I mean, it's hard for me to explain myself <laughs> because of where I'm from and um, my intersectionality and the different borders that I grew up in. And I know that you share a lot of that same experience. Um, and I know that most of our listeners are based in the U.S., but not all of them. Not all of them. Um, and I, I, I have an interesting know. following of people in art in Australia. Mm-hmm. Quite a few people in Australia Ooh. listen to our show. <laughs> yeah, which that's is awesome. A, um, but I'd love to hear what you think of queer Latin American culture today. Like, where do you is where do you think it is today, um, and how do you think it's going? Oh, oh, oh. All right, folks, that was it for this episode, Um, but we will see you for part two. Um, Stay tuned. Let us know uh, what you think. Please send an email or message us on Instagram. Uh, We really enjoyed this conversation with Ale Marquez, and we have a whole other episode where we deep dive to answer this question. You can find more information about this episode and the show at our website, southernqueries.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching Southern Queries. Queries is with two E's. Until next time, thanks for listening. Some credits. Production. Your hosts, India and Aubrey. Audio mixing by Allison Holly. Story research, Aubrey Calvin. Editing, India Bastian. This is Southern Queries.